Well, good morning. What a great time of worship to our Lord. Well, I want to start by mentioning that this coming Wednesday at 630 is our communion and worship service. It's a time when we come together as the body of Christ and focus on the death, burial, and resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's a time of sweet fellowship amongst the body as we focus on the cross. We spend the full time, the full hour focusing on Jesus and what he's done for us. This is an opportunity. It's a privilege for the body of Christ to take communion together. So I encourage all of you this Wednesday at 630 to come to our worship and communion service. But as we begin this morning, let's go to our Lord in prayer. Holy Father, we are in awe of who you are, Father. Well, at least right now, we're in awe of who you are. I think often in our lives, we're not in awe of who you are. We confess that to you, Father. We confess that we often are in awe of who we are instead of you. So forgive us for that. Help us to be in awe of you. Help us to walk in your ways. Depend on your spirit for our strength, for our love, for how we care for one another, for how we care for those in the world. Help us to be willing and humbly and boldly to speak the truth and love to others. We thank you for your word. We thank you for this time. We thank you for the church. In Christ we pray. Amen. Well, we are in our series in the Gospel of John, as many of you know, and I've entitled this message, When Grace Meets Us at the Well. We'll be specifically in John 4, verses 1 through 30. John 4, verses 1 through 30. And I've asked Don Bacora to come up here and read this section of Scripture so we can hear it in its entirety before I preach it. So Don, come up, please. Jesus knew the Pharisees had heard that he was baptizing and making more disciples than John. Though Jesus himself didn't baptize, his disciples did. So he left for Judea and returned to Galilee. He had to go through Samaria on the way. Eventually, he came to the Samaritan village of Sychar, near the field that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired from the long walk, sat wearily beside the well about noontime. Soon a Samaritan woman came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Please give me a drink. He was alone at the time because his disciples had gone to the village to buy some food. The woman was surprised, for Jews refused to have anything to do with Samaritans. She said to Jesus, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. Why are you asking me for a drink? Jesus replied, If only you knew the gift God has for you and who you are speaking to, you would ask me, and I would give you living water. But, sir, you don't have a rope or a bucket, she said, and this well is very deep. Where would you get this living water? And besides, do you think you're greater than our ancestor Jacob, who gave us this well? 
How can you offer better water than he and his sons and his animals enjoyed? Jesus replied, Anyone who drinks this water will soon become thirsty again. But those who drink the water I give will never be thirsty again. It becomes a fresh, bubbling spring within them, giving them eternal life. Please, sir, the woman said, give me this water. Then I'll never be thirsty again, and I won't have to come here to get water. Go and get your husband, Jesus told her. I don't have a husband, the woman replied. Jesus said, you're right. You don't have a husband, for you have had five husbands, and you aren't even married to the man you're living with now. You certainly spoke the truth. Sir, the woman said, you must be a prophet. So tell me, why is it that you Jews insist that Jerusalem is the only place of worship, while we Samaritans claim it is here on Mount Gerasim, where our ancestors worshipped? Jesus replied, Believe me, dear woman, the time is coming when it will no longer matter whether you worship the Father on this mountain or in Jerusalem. You Samaritans know very little about the one you worship, while we Jews know all about him, for salvation comes through the Jews. But the time is coming, indeed it is here now, when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. The Father is looking for those who will worship him that way. For God is spirit, so those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know the Messiah is coming, the one who is called Christ. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus told her, I am the Messiah. Just then his disciples came back. They were shocked to find him talking to a woman, but none of them had the nerve to ask, what do you want with her? Or why are you talking to her? The woman left her water jar beside the well and ran back to the village, telling everyone, come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could he possibly be the Messiah? So the people came streaming from the village to see him. Thank you, Don, for that reading of God's word. It's such a blessing we hear the word of God just read to us out loud like that. But the section starts with Jesus traveling from Judea to Galilee. And we see that Jesus goes through Samaria to get to Galilee. And verse 6, it tells us that Jesus is tired. He's worn out. This reveals his humanity of Jesus. We recognize that he's fully God. But here we see he's also fully man at the same time. But it says as he goes to Samaria... Sychar is where he's at exactly, and he goes to this well, stops at this well, and a divine encounter is about to take place. This isn't a random meeting. This is not like Jesus taking a rest. Jesus is intentional. And this woman is in for the conversation of a lifetime, a God-ordained meeting with the Son of God, a divine appointment, if you may. 
is one of those moments where it dawns on you that this is a really special moment. This may be the most significant moment of your life. Well, this woman is about to experience this, embark on that endeavor as Jesus starts conversing with her. The question is, why does he talk to this woman? Why does he actually talk to this woman? I mean, he's tired. He's thirsty. He's probably hungry. The scripture says it's the sixth hour, which means it was around lunchtime. And yet Jesus begins to reveal himself to the Samaritan woman. And this leads to my first point, which is quite mind-blowing. I don't know if we've ever heard this point before. Are you ready? No. <laughs> okay, well, you better be ready. It's going. Anyway, it's coming, happening. Point number one says this. Jesus cares for others. Point number one. Jesus cares for others. And you may be thinking, of course Jesus cares for other people, right? But I think we need to let that just sit in our mind for a second and soak in our hearts. Let us think about the depth of Christ's love for us, for everyone. God gave his son, right? For God so loved the world that he gave. He obeyed the Father perfectly. He he served the sick. He healed the diseased. He opened the eyes of the blind. He raised the dead. He worked continuously. He prayed fervently. He loved eternally. Jesus cares for people. Jesus says in Matthew 23, 37, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills a prophet and stone those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing. Can you feel how much Jesus cares for people? Can you feel the emotion behind those words? In this passage, Jesus is talking about loving people who rejected him. The ones who were appointed to murder him. He compares his love, his care, his protection like a hen who gathers her chicks. Takes care of them. Protects them. Jesus loves people. He cares for others. He was willing to reach out to the woman at the well because he cared for her. What about us? Do we care for other people? Do we really love people? I think we naturally say, of course we care for others, right? But biblically, we learn that it's not natural all to care for people or love people. It takes a lot of work. Scripture tells us, I think that's why the greatest commandment is to love God and love others the way we love ourselves. In other words, the way we focus on ourselves, Christ says, focus on God and others that very same way. The question is, how do we actually focus on ourselves? Well, it looks like Us chasing after what we want, what our supposed needs are. It's being so consumed with the busyness of our own lives and the problems and the issues in our own families that we don't realize how uncaring we really are being to the rest of those around us. Are we focusing on others the way we focus on ourselves and our own families? That's what Christ is talking about. What about when we're tired? Or worn out. Like Christ in this story. 
do we still love other people when we're tired? Or do we have the attitude that says, I deserve a break. I worked all day. It's time for some me time. I wonder if Jesus thought about having me time. And of course, the answer is no. Christ focused on glorifying the Father in everything he did instead of having me time. And as believers, our lives are no different. We are here to love God and to serve and love other people. Amen? Another question is, who would you think Jesus would choose as one of his first Converts. Who would be a great witness and testimony to Jesus Christ? We might assume this person must be very wise. Or they, we may think that they were very prominent in the community and have a lot of influence. Or we may be thinking, you know what? The Lord's good. He's going to pick somebody who knows his Bible. He's theologically sound. He understands the scriptures. He understands church history. He's going to be like a giant or she's going to be like a giant in the faith, right? We see this in John 3, right? That Nicodemus seeks out Christ. And that makes sense to us because Nicodemus was a theologian of his day, a religious leader who had influence over many. But then we get to chapter 4 and our worlds are turned upside down as Jesus reveals himself to a Samaritan woman who has, let's just say, a colorful past, and her present circumstances aren't much better at all. Which leads to point number two. Jesus's love cuts through the boundaries of the culture. Jesus's love cuts through the boundaries of of the culture. There are two cultural barriers Christ broke by talking to the woman at the well. The first way Christ crossed cultural barriers was the fact that the woman was a Samaritan. This would have been shocking. This would have been unthinkable for a Jew to converse with a Samaritan woman. In verse 8, Jesus says, give me a drink. In verse 9, the Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? That would be a common answer. We would expect this reaction from her because the Samaritans were a mix of Jewish and Gentile descent. So they would be considered impure. They would have been rejected, not accepted by the Jews at all. A first century rabbi once said this, He that eats bread with Samaritans is like one that eats the flesh of swine. That's not a compliment. So Jesus crossed the barrier of ethnic hatred to reach out to this woman. But secondly, Jesus crossed the barrier of gender as a Samaritan was a woman. It was said that for the Jewish men that um, it was two things that they were thankful not to be. Number one, a Samaritan. Number two, a woman. Sorry, women. But that's what it says. This was no exaggeration, as even rabbis would have been looked down upon if he talked in public with his wife or his daughters. And yet Jesus talks openly with this Samaritan woman, not worried about what he looks like, not worried about his reputation, The question is, why did Christ cross these barriers? Was it to be a rebel? 
Or to prove that he could do whatever he wanted because he was a son of God? Of course, no, right? Christ was not prideful or arrogant. That would mean he's sinful, right? He was perfect. Christ didn't have anything to prove to anyone. Christ crossed ethnic and gender barriers because he cared for her. He loved her. He obeyed everything the Father told him to do. I mean, we have to realize that this woman would not have ended up in the temple that week, nor would she have gone to the synagogue. I mean, if she was around in our day, she wouldn't be sitting here right now in church. Jesus came to her. Jesus met her in her world. William Barclay says this, Here is God so loving the world, not in theory, but with action. And similarly, we have many people in our own backyard who aren't churchgoers, who think it's ridiculous to come to church. They may have wrong viewpoints about God. They may have wrong viewpoints about Christ. They may believe a bunch of lies about the church. They may think all Christians are hypocrites. So we are called to cross cultural barriers and care for them. We are called to love them. We're called to get involved in others' lives. We are called to pray for them, serve them, share the gospel with them. Amen? For example, are we willing to help our neighbor who mourns over the loss of a loved one? Or are a family member who's going through a divorce, are we willing to come alongside and help them and speak truth to them? Or are we willing to help an unbelieving friend who's struggling with depression? Will we be Christ to them? Will we enter their world? Are we willing to get in the trenches and minister to those who need to hear the hope and love of Jesus Christ? But let's move on because we have 30 verses today. <laughs> um, we're now in John 4, verses 10 through 15. Where it seems, it seems here that the woman at the well is not really buying what Jesus is saying at all or understanding what he's talking about. Let's start in verse 10. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where do you get the living water? Are you greater than their father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. She jabs at Jesus by saying, how do you expect to draw water? She says, you're going to give me living water, and yet you don't even have a bucket to draw with. And then she abruptly says, are you greater than our father, Jacob? The questions sound a little sarcastic. But Jesus does not react to her attitude. He looks beyond the jabs and the frustration and sees a hurting woman whom he cared for. Verse 13. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I give him will become in him a spring of welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. 
Not only does she seem to not have contempt for Jesus, but she doesn't really understand what he's talking about. She has no clue. She's thinking Jesus is going to offer some type of magic water that will quench her thirst for good. Physically. She does not understand that Christ is the living water, that he is the Messiah. The very thing this woman needed was Christ who was standing right in front of her. Many of us may have given up on this woman thinking, this person isn't open to the truth. This person's too sarcastic. They're closed. But Jesus continues because he deeply cares for her. He loves her. Up to this point, It's been a really interesting and intriguing conversation for this woman, but honestly, it looks like Christ isn't getting anywhere with her, right? But the tides turn in verse 16 where Jesus takes the conversation to a place where the woman never expected to go. Let's read it, verses 16 through 19. Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. When Jesus said, go get your husband, this must have jolted her. It was like pouring salt on a wound. Jesus pierces to the heart of this woman. The light of Christ always brings out the darkness in us. Which leads to point number three. Jesus cares so much that he reveals her sin. Jesus cares so much that he reveals her sin. Jesus does not even confront her with her sin per se. He just brings it up out of the blue. He takes her to the problem, to her sinfulness, to her brokenness, to where her guilt and shame lies. And some think, well, this is just a little too personal. I can't believe Jesus did this. I mean, they were talking about water, and then all of a sudden, they're talking about her personal failures and her sinfulness, right? Why does he do this? Why does Jesus get so personal with her? Because he cares for her. I don't know if I've said that yet. Jesus isn't worried about her happiness or her confidence in herself. Jesus isn't trying to flatter her. Jesus isn't trying to make himself look good either. No, Jesus is focused on her. He zeroed in on her, what she needs, what will help her. Jesus is doing what is best for this woman. Jesus sees the woman in bondage, enslaved to her own lust, her own fears, her own immorality. She's controlled by the sinfulness of her own wicked heart. Instead of living water, this woman was living on sewer sludge and it started with the darkness that resided within her. Here Christ is showing her where true fulfillment comes, where she can find real freedom and it starts with a brokenness over our sinfulness. Mark 2, 17 says this. Jesus is actually speaking. He says, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but the sinners. Our biggest problem is not wounds of the heart. It's not self-esteem issues. It's not generational curses. It's not past hurts. It's not genetic disorders. Scripture makes it crystal clear that it is sin that is our problem. 
What is the problem in our marriages? What is the problem in our parenting? What is the problem with our children's behavior? What's the problem with our behavior? What's the problem in the church when there's divisions? What's the problem that leads to divorce? What is the problem when we struggle with things like fear, worry, anger, unforgiveness? The problem always lies in our sinfulness. Sin is the issue. It is the problem because sin separates us from God. I wonder if we really believe that sin is our greatest problem. It's not only our greatest problem, but it's humanity's greatest problem. Are we speaking the truth to each other as believers? As the body of Christ, we are willing to love our brothers and sisters in Christ enough to point out their sin because we're supposed to love each other. Well, let's go back to our story where Jesus has just floored the woman by sharing secret information about her sinful relationship patterns. And we hear her response in verse 19 and 20. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive you're a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Now, many think at this point that the woman changes the subject because it was getting a little too personal. It was a little too comfortable. The heat was rising too much, and she sort of changed the subject. So she starts talking about theology. But I really don't think that's the case. I don't think that's what's going on. It seems she now believes that Jesus is really a prophet. So she begins to talk to him about God, about worship, about where people should go to worship, what she really cares about. Not to change the subject, but because she realizes that Jesus is from God. So Jesus tells her. In verse 21, Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for salvation is for the Jews. But the hour is coming and now is here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know the Messiah is coming. He who is called Christ, when he comes, he will tell us all things. How ironic, huh? Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Jesus tells her, it's not about going somewhere to worship God. It's not about going to the mountain where the Samaritans worship or going to Jerusalem where the Jews worship. But true worshipers will worship him in spirit and in truth. Which leads to point number four. Jesus cares so much that he shows us our sin to redeem us. Point number four says Jesus cares so much that he shows us our sin to redeem us. Christ doesn't reveal our sin to condemn us. John three seventeen tells us this. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Christ came to save us. Christ is the solution to our sin problem. Amen? I wonder if we realize that often we are like this woman. She was talking to Jesus 
He was the living water, and yet her life was filled with all sorts of false substitutes. Even as believers, we wander from Christ and pursue false substitutes of the heart as well. We can become consumed with the world and turn to things like entertainment where we turn to fleeting happiness instead of where we find real joy in Christ Jesus. Or we turn to addictions, maybe to eating or drinking or drugs, and it gives us a sense of peace for a moment. But then in the end, we are left empty once again. Or others of us pursue our profession over our family and even God all to find purpose instead of realizing that our ultimate purpose is to glorify God. That's what we're here for, right? And of course, Christ comes to us and points out our idols, our false substitutes, like he does with the woman because, again, he cares for us. He cares for this woman. But the reality of it is, all of us have been the woman at the well. Do we realize that? We lived in rebellion against God. We were wicked to the core. We were dying of thirst, drinking everything except living water. And yet Christ pursued us, showed us our sin, revealed himself to us, and gave us a drink. Christ satisfied the deepest part of us. Christ overflowed our hearts with the power of the Holy Spirit. Overflowed our hearts with his Sovereign grace. Christ gave us himself. And for that, we are changed forever. And he continues to do so as we are further looking more like him every day. Why does Christ do this? Why does he save us? And he continues to draw us back when we start wandering away? Because he cares for us. He cares for you. He cares for me. He loves his bride, the church. May we care for others the way Christ cares for us and offer others living water, which is Christ that leads to eternal life. Let's go to our Lord in prayer. Holy Father, we thank you for what you've done, sending your Son to die for us, die for wretched sinners like us. We thank you for his perfect obedience, willing to glorify the Father in everything he said and did through his whole life. But we thank you that you love us, that you are changing us for your glory. Father, I ask that those that don't know you that may be here, that you convict them like Christ convicted this woman at the well. Convict them of their sin. Help them to see you as you are. Help them to turn to you and drink living water. We thank you for what you're doing here at the church, Father. Help us to be diligent, to know your word as your believers and, and grow in discipleship, Father, but ultimately because we are passionate and zealous for you, for your son. May you guide us in many of these dark days that we live in, Father, and recognize that we are called to be lights to a dark world and care for others. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.